Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. Everyone in the world has gone to bed one night or another with fear or pain or loss or disappointment. And yet each of us has awakened and arisen. There is the nobleness of the human spirit. Despite it all, black and white, Asian, Spanish, Native American, pretty, plain, thin, Fat, vowed or celibate, we rise. Triple R is where you are, and this show is indeed the glass house. Um, it is Eliza here filling in for Beth again this week. A pleasure to be back with you on the glass house talking everything stories. Um, before I go anywhere, I do want to acknowledge that we're broadcasting today from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I want to pay my sincerest respects to all their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I am so excited about the show I've got for you here today. Um, very shortly, I'm going to have Sakriana and Aretha Brown on to talk about The Bold Source, which is a new youth-led magazine coming out of Melbourne's West. And then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to have Dr. Janine Lean on the phone. Janine is a Wiradjuri writer, poet and academic, and we're going to be talking about this incredible new collection of poetry called Guayu for All Times. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, so joining me now is Aretha Brown and Sakriana to talk about this new magazine that has come out of Melbourne's West. It's called The Bold Source and it's a youth-led magazine from people across Brimbank to have their voices heard. Hello. Hi. Excellent. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Um, so The Bold Source is a magazine that is a biannual magazine that's from young people aged 12 to 25 who live, study, work or have a connection to Brimbank. And it's the first edition is exploring this theme of advocacy, which I think is very, very fitting for the times right now. And I'm sure it was very inspiring to work on as young people. Um, Sakriana, you're in year nine and you're on the editorial committee. Tell me, yeah. how was it for you to kind of be involved in this project and what was your role in it? Uh, right. So, um, the bold source, I feel very empowered that such a young person as myself can be able to express my own voice as well as help other people express and so 
our role in the whole editorial team is just to um, help spread ideas, help with the editing, and yeah, it's basically it. But um, uh, yeah, us editorial team can also submit some stuff. But lately, we've been very uh, had our hands tied for a while trying to edit and come up with some new ideas. Yeah, yeah, great. So what I love about this magazine is that it really, I think it's young people connecting to young people, but also mm-hmm. being given the opportunity to speak for their own community. Um, I mean, I'll put this question to both of you, but maybe, yeah, Sakriana, you can start first and then Aretha, you can go. Um, why do you feel like it's so vital for young people or people to be able to speak from their, their community about what's important to them? Um, I think it's important for young people to speak about their own opinions for their community because I feel like every human being on the earth has an opinion and I feel like it should be said. You have the right to. You have human rights. And I think we, as a youthless magazine group, we mainly focus on the youth because that's who we are and we're just trying to spread, shed light on ourselves and very important because as time passes, youth is starting to dilute in terms of our opinion and our, I guess you can say, our value perceived by others. So we're just trying to t- keep that strength. We're still trying to strengthen that. Yeah, great. I love that. And how about for you, Aretha? Like what um, strikes of chord for you in community being able to speak for their own communities? Um, yeah, so I suppose the reason it's so important for me is because it is essentially storytelling. You know, with this magazine, it's a bunch of young people, including myself, telling our stories. Um, and it's just the fact that we don't really get to hear young people straight from our own mouths saying exactly how we feel, how we want it, told by us in our own magazine, <laughs> you know? Um, we kind of get to take control in that sense. And I think that's really empowering. And it just hasn't happened in a very, very long time. Um, and w- what it does is essentially is it gives us a context in which to live um, and a context in which to, to kind of describe ourselves um, in the Western suburbs, which essentially builds empathy and, and essentially it kind of creates understanding. Um, and, yeah, I think that's so important because, you know, living in the Western suburbs, I think it's quite easy to kind of, I don't know, to, 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 we get to create our own narrative and, and, and that just doesn't happen anywhere else in kind of mainstream media. And so I suppose this is a response to that, um, that lack of diversity and lack of young opinion um, in, in regular media, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Having, yeah. I mean, looking through this magazine, it feels, it has a lot of heart to it and it definitely feels like it um portrays the people who are telling the stories in it that was the impression I got which I just loved reading um Aretha you have both an artwork that's the cover art and an interview featured in it do you want to quickly talk Mm. me through the it's the glass I think the greenhouse is that what the cover art's called I think (laughs) yeah sure um so yeah, that is just like um, yeah, a painting I do in the front, and it is quite a bold word. <laughs> I'm trying to describe my painting. Over the radio. I'm, like, I'm not the best. Uh, it's like what does it, what does it mean to you? Um, yeah, it is essentially me kind of showing the kind of industrial side of the western suburbs. So I'm kind of painting the area right under the Westgate. People might know it when you drive over, and you see those big kind of gallon kind of tanks, um, and they're huge. They're ginormous. I've got the numbers on them. Um, 
And I suppose for me that that artwork and this type of style is really important to me as an Indigenous person and as a young Indigenous artist as well because that is how I relate to country, you know? Um, I didn't grow up in the desert, like, you know, it, 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 you know, I didn't grow up in the bush. Like, I, what I see is, is I, I don't see trees. I don't see kangaroos. I, I don't see that kind of stuff that's in the bush. I see possums, maybe old, like, you know, old neighborhood dogs. I see <laughs> refineries. I see streetlights. And that is country to me. Um, and I think that's just as valid as any other kind of um, experience navigating country and, and living in a colony. And um, it's important that that's kind of how I showcase being an urban well, living in the city as an Aboriginal person, I think, um, yeah. So that's kind of what the work is about. So it's a big city landscape, but, yeah. <laughs> totally. It's your, it's your connection to your place um, and, yeah, mm. that comes through. I guess this is a very exciting theme to open the first edition of this youth-led magazine with of advocacy. Um, and, yeah, Aretha, you are an activist, you're an Indigenous activist and you've done a lot of work and you've spoken out for um, Indigenous young people for a while now um how do you like how important do you think the advocacy is in this day and age um yeah I think it's super important um you know obviously but I just think what's important to remember is that there's obviously a distinction between who gets to decide to be an activist and who decides to be an activist because they're two very different things um as a woman and as, um, you know, as an Aboriginal person, I have no choice in the matter. The day I was born, I was born an activist and I was born a political entity. Um, and that's, that's just how it is. And, it, it, you know, you have to kind of understand that there's privilege in deciding to do this or not even getting the choice in the matter, you know. Um, and so I think activism is incredibly important, but understanding that before you even begin to, to, to go on your own individual journeys to decolonize or, or you know, provide climate justice or, or whatnot, um, understand is, that, is this a choice you're making because you want to, you're interested or because you're, um, yeah, is it out of curiosity or is it because it's a human right that you have to do? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so understanding that distinction. But it is important. Um, <laughs> And I've lots of hope in our generation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. There was, a, there was a line in your interview that really struck me of how every person of colour is an activist and as part of that just existing as a political act. And I think that was really powerful because, um, it, yeah, it definitely reminded me that it is... So a lot of people take it for granted that it is a choice and it isn't a choice for everybody. Um, what about you, Sakriana, as, yeah. like, as a person and as an editor coming into this edition, how, how important is activism for you and has your relationship with it changed over the course of this project? Um, I've got to say that um, in terms of this project, I think this project has um, enlightened my perspectives and getting to work with other people um, and hearing their different opinions, it kind of gives me more knowledge and, uh, like I said, it enlightens me. But then I, I guess you could say that I was a bit closed-minded, <laughs> but after becoming a part of this team and seeing what they write, seeing how they work, and just listening to the experiences, I think that in itself is what changed me the most. Just the little things, honestly, about this group, about this project, that really becomes a part of you. 
you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Like a really strong vibe that I got was um, it felt like a really supportive platform, a really supportive space, like these things of like kind of making, expressing, feeling, sharing, listening, like they kind of kept coming up as these recurring themes or expressions throughout. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, and something that I think is really interesting is that both of those qualities, all of those qualities are quite important to both making a magazine and also to activism. Like how, um, how, how do you feel like, what do you feel like the landscape is for young people these days? Because I feel like there's some qualities that are often shied away from, but, like, what's it like out there as, as a young person? As a young person, I think, in my, through my eyes, um, I think there are a lot of platforms for um, activism, especially for the youth, to be involved in. I think there's a lot of those kind of stuff out there. It's just that you have to have the will to go and search for it. It's starting to come to the surface and people are starting to find them. But I think if people are really passionate about something, if young people are passionate about specific subjects, maybe they're very hard on culture or education. And I think it's all up to them, you know? up to your willpower how much you really want what you want to get yeah yeah definitely I think um Aretha in your interview in in the magazine another thing that um I think it kind of reminded me that you know I'm I'm in my late 20s so I'm kind of on that cusp of a young person (laughs) um but I'm definitely it's been a long time since I was at school and you described some pretty um like uh, harrowing in some ways experiences that you had at school where, you know, like essentially you had a hate crime committed against you and your artworks were destroyed, which is like unacceptable. And it's, it really astounded me that the, um, the response to that student was not, um, I guess they weren't like sort of reprimanded in a way that I would think was appropriate. But for me, when I look at young people, Today, you know, I see so much opportunity in terms of access to information. I see so much savviness. I see so much like, I feel like everyone is, I come across as just so educated about sort of social politics and human rights and Indigenous rights in a way that I just wasn't as fortunate to be able to learn about when I was in school. How do you, what do you feel like the landscape looks like? Um, Because obviously I'm I'm projecting from an outside there, but I don't actually know what it's like to be young these days. Um, Yeah, it's a good question. I suppose technology has just changed the game, period. (laughs) It's changed everything. Um, I write about it a little bit in in the magazine, but but essentially the the crux of my point was like, because of social media, you know, everyone gets an opinion, which is the best thing because it means no one's voiceless. But the flip side to that is everyone has an opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and everyone, like, everyone gets to kind of raise it. And um, I don't know, it, it's tricky. It's, it's Technology is brilliant because it connects so many different communities. Like, I get to talk to my mob, you know, um, that are up in northern New South Wales, and I get to interact with, with activists, young, you know, youth activists all across Australia. And I think that's incredibly rewarding. Um, but like I said, the other the flip side of that is social media opens you up to so many kind of um, you know n- n- negative aspects as well. You know, um, I get so much kind of racism online and my Instagram and whatnot, and 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 that's like a daily occurrence now. Um, 
but that is something that I've kind of, I, I don't know, it, it, it's also equaled out by how much kind of support you get online as well. But, you know, because of Corona, um, I think everything has to go online. You know, normally I'd be, I'd be doing panels, I'd be speaking um, at events, going to schools and stuff, which is what I love to do. But now it's all online. And I think that can be kind of, kind of tricky to, to, to tend to navigate because um, how can you have a real relationship or, or connection or a deep, a really deep conversation about some of, you know, arguably the darkest moments of our Australian history via, like, Facebook Messenger or, like, mm. via, you know, an Instagram Zoom call. Totally. section. You know, it, it, it's kind of... Um, you, yeah, yeah it, you're very vulnerable tricky. in that space. Like, I feel like yeah. it exposes you to kind of people's bravado that they might not have in real life. And you're also in your home. Like, that's a challenging challenging world to straddle. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but I think as young people today, we, we, always have to, or we always have to acknowledge that it is easy for us to be, not easy, it, it, it is more, it, it's, it, it's, uh, what's the word? Not easy. It, it, it's almost more kind of available to climate activists nowadays because of, of you know, mob that came before us. You know, I'm always looking mm-hmm. back at my man or, you know, uh, Uncle Gary Foley, who's my elder, uh, who does a lot of work down here in Melbourne, or, you know, mob like that, William Cooper, all those fellows that have paved the way to make it easier for us um, to do the stuff that we do today. That there's a, a long legacy that came well before us that kind of helped us you know, have these discussions where we're not going to get arrested. Definitely. <laughs> doing so, you know. Um, and we always have to be so aware of that. You know, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're not the first to ever have these conversations. Um, mm. It's just I think we get to be a lot louder nowadays. But we've always got to hone in on our elders. They're very important. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I'm sure they've yeah. given you a lot of strength as well, looking, looking at what they've done and being, giving you strength yeah. to carry on the fight. Um, well, thank you both so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure to chat to you. Yeah, likewise. Um, the Bold Source is... Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so if you just joined in, the, <laughs> the Bold Source is a biannual youth-led magazine. It's a digital online magazine that you can find at brimbankyouth.com. And I've been talking to Aretha Brown and Sakriana about their experiences with the magazine. And I think that, you know, while we're all in lockdown... Um, I don't, I don't know about everyone else out there, but I'm a bit worried about the future. I think it's a really good time to hear from the people who are our future. So, yeah, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. I just wanted to say quickly a big shout-out to Najib, who's also uh, one of the followers that helped out in the magazine. He's, like, the fire behind this whole thing. I just wanted to shout-out to him for kind of putting it on as well. So, awesome. I'm thank you. <laughs> glad you snuck that one in there. <laughs> You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. GYU for All Times is a fiercely uncensored collection featuring 63 new poems from First Nations poets um, in 12 First Nations languages and it's been commissioned by Red Room Poetry and edited by Dr Janine Lean who is an award-winning Wiradjuri writer and academic and is on the phone with me right now. Hi Janine, how are you going? 
Hi, how are you? Thanks, Eliza. It's I'm good, thanks. A pleasure to have you on the show. Um, firstly, congratulations on publishing such a, an astounding collection of works. Thank you. Um, I'd love to start this conversation just by talking about this term, guayu, and which I understand means still and for all times and has obviously informed the title of the collection. Can you tell me a little bit about what it means in Wiradjuri and how it sort of came to be the title? Yes. Um, thank you, Eliza. First of all, I'd like to um, yeah acknowledge that I belong to the Wiradjuri people and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, and I'm speaking to you to today from um, Ngunnawal, Ngambri country here in um, Canberra, where I've um, spent the last 30, 30 years and had the privilege of living and working. Um, Gawaiu is a Wiradjuri word that means um, still and yet and for all times. Um, Gawaiu means that times are inseparable and no time is ever over and all times are unfinished. Um, and in all the many Aboriginal languages across the country, there is a similar word that means this, this um, melding and layering of time. And so when I had the privilege of being asked to work with First Nations poets who'd um, written for Red Room and to um, bring together these absolutely amazing First Nations offerings into this collection, I chose that term, Gwai, for all times, or still and yet, meaning now, then, beyond and forever. Um, because I felt like much of this work releases the arrested times of the country's first people, um, like myself, who've been held captive in the colonial calendar, and that it was freeing up kidnapped memories held hostage to the false, false claims of settlement and nationhood and sovereignty and justice. That's, there's a lot in that title, and I think... Um the fact that this is a collection of many different poets from many different parts of the country um, is probably one of the only ways to do that justice, right, by featuring new new writers, old writers, people from all different countries across this country. Um, why in, in a process like this where you are producing a collection full of First Nations poems, it, why it's so important to have a... Um, sort of, con I think in the forward you mentioned that the editing and consultation process is a benchmark in First Nations editing. Can you tell me why it's so important to have First Nations people editing First Nations work? Yes, thank you um, for that question. It is an important question and, and the collection is unique um, in many ways. But um, I chose... I, I thought very carefully, and I don't even like the word editing because it comes with all these connotations of a Western-style process. I like to see it more like facilitating and how do these words that people, that our First Nations um, creators have produced for the Red Room in digital form, how are these going to bloom onto the page for people and um, so 
Editing processes often with publishers are a bit of a sifting and sorting and exceptionalising process. Whereas I came to this collection um, not just with the assumption but with the belief that um, everyone is a poet and that as First Nations people we are all poets. Um, across the Atlantic, um, African-American writer Audre Lorde reminds us that poetry is not just the sterile or contrived wordplay of a Western canon. <laughs> and I took that really, and I know that from myself anyway, from being raised as a black woman by black women. So when I approach this collection with a belief that everyone is a poet and poetry is nothing if not what's in the hearts and minds of a people, um, at, at a particular time and of particular places and for all times. And it isn't that sterilised word play that is necessarily sanitised or stylized or orchestrated. And with this in mind, it then became the privilege of working with all First Nations poets who had been involved with um, Red Room projects thus far to um, to see how they wanted their works to um, to blossom onto the page, and in and how and I made a decision that I was not going to cut or censor anything; mm. that it was just going to be what was really at the foremost of what people wanted to do with their poetry and how to bring that um, to the page. Mm. And in in this way, it speaks to the many countries under the geopolitically federated nation. And as you said, the collection also. So it's a benchmark in several ways, that editing process. But also the collection brings together many voices that have never been heard before, many new poets from across the length and breadth of this continent alongside uh, emerging poets who have been published before but maybe don't own a book yet, and very established and acclaimed poets. And um, finally, I think, is the diversity of First Nations languages represented in this collection is to date unprecedented in um, Australian Indigenous publishing in a, in a poetry collection and is, um, is long overdue. And I guess another thing radical about it, and I, I think you might, might have put this question on to discuss a bit later, but maybe I'll address it now, was our use of the term interpretation rather than translation. I was just was, going to ask you about that. So Yeah, <laughs> look, that was a very conscious choice and one recommended by participating elders and custodians because um, one of the Red Room um, projects was um, a project called Poetry in First Languages and I was lucky enough to have participated in that project and to go on a language journey with an elder, with a language custodian or a Wiradjuri language custodian and all writers in, who wrote in, in, in language got to do that and it was not just the poetry, it was that journey of going back to something that should have been our mother tongue and learning from our elders in um, <clears throat> that way and in this consultative process where elders and custodians 
um, came or took us on these journeys, um, it was decided that it was more um, appropriate to use the term interpretation because it was more faithful to the complexities of each of our languages um, that are unique and that refuse, a bit like our writing, refusing binaries and um, genre and gender mm. classifications, then um, the languages refuse direct classifications and translations, but they can be interpreted mm. for for wider readers. So um, that was part of the logic of the process, and that's the reason why we use that word. And along with the editing process, um, this collection did adhere to those strict cultural protocols that were implemented by the First Nations writers and the community itself. And as a result, um, the voices in the collection are uncut and uncensored, as you mentioned, and um, uh, the collection is written for and by um, First Nations from the many um, different communities across the modern nation of Australia. And I think a lot of Aboriginal writing at the moment is still subject to imported and introduced and sometimes invasive Northern Hemisphere literary practices. And this collection knows no such limits mm. or borders or boundaries. The works were not trimmed, not manipulated or edited sorry, by settler editors with a settler audience in mind. And probably that's one of the most radical interventions about... Um, this collection. Mm. It definitely, like, that sort of thoughtfulness and consideration in the process of putting this whole collection together definitely shows through throughout, like, um, I, as you dip in and out, you definitely get a feel and a sense of each writer on their own, um, but then also how they sort of come together. You have, you use this really beautiful metaphor um, about how Aboriginal peoples have woven here since time immemorial and how just as weaving is a series of intricately connected threads that loop, twine, coil, spiral and braid, the poets of Guayu loop, twine, coil and spiral words together as threads in a vessel. Um, that's such a strong image and was really powerful for me in sort of setting the scene for the collection. Can you talk a little bit about this symmetry between weaving and the poems? Yeah, and this this collection, as you have alluded to, um, well, first of all, I'd like to say that the, the poems in this, all the poems in this collection, um, and in addition to being beautiful poems, and each poem is a thread that is part of a much greater vessel that is the sum of us First Nations poets writing at that time, um, the poems in this project that I realised go beyond acknowledging poetry as a beautiful art form. It does do that, but it goes beyond that to recognising its capacity for um, far-reaching and, and lasting impact and for social justice and greater community awareness and emotional well-being. And that, in a way, too, is like a woven vessel. There is the process of doing it that is so, so valuable in itself, that threading, that weaving, uh, that um, experience of many hands and many people. But then there is a finished product that lasts way beyond to the, pr 
process, but that still holds that process for all those who wish to access um, that vessel, that basket, that net, this book mm. in, in future. And in this book, each poem is like a thread and um, it's, each poem is like a thread and the page becomes a little bit of a vessel. The page becomes a thread in a vessel and each person, you know, crafts the object of that page and, and it's the making and the crafting of that vessel that embeds the maker as, as much as the vessel itself into its um, body. And I think the collection of poems are like the baskets and nets of the page and they come together thread by thread um, from all over the country, from uh, a really diverse range of poets across geography, across gender, across age, um, but they come together in the end as, as um, an exquisite vessel of um, 21st century living Aboriginal culture in poetry. I should, I should mention there, um, I didn't do this in the introduction, but yeah, there's a very extensive list of writers and people who've contributed to it, including writers like Alan Van Nierveen and Ali Cobb-Eckerman and Bruce Pascoe. Um, and Samuel Wagan Watson. Um, so yeah, it's very it's a very impressive lineup um, for all of those who are interested. It also is organised around these themes, which are these Red Room poetry, um, the themes of several Red Room poetry projects, including extinction allergies, new shoots, poetry objects, the disappearing, um, and as you mentioned earlier, poetry in first languages. I, I mean, <laughs> there's so much we could talk about today and we have such a short time, but I'd love to talk about extinction allergies and sort of this notion of taking um, a form that typically reflects human loss and applying that to kind of the non-human world and to species and habitats and, and yeah, that natural world. Um, how have different poets explored it throughout the connection and kind of how did, what was your approach in that theme? Yeah, look, in, in exploring this theme, I, I keep on talking about pushing boundaries, crossing boundaries, challenging boundaries, and one of the things that the, particularly in the extinction allergies, but I think threading through a lot of First Nations writing or uh, um, more broadly, is this challenge to the idea of the superiority of human life or the centering of human life and the embracing and the acceptance and, and and the coexistence of presences other than humans and life forms, uh, you know, the most obvious being plants, animals, flora and fauna. But beyond that, even the things that we cannot see um, that are existing around us and that are feeling around us and that we can learn so much from. And I think poets explored that in a way that really challenged what our Western beliefs about life and hierarchies and um, from in that very philosophical way to poets who handled it, for example, 
uh, like uh, I'm thinking of a particularly moving poem by Ali Cobby Eckerman about um, the killing of eagles. Did you read that poem? I did. I flicked through it this morning, actually. <laughs> yes. Okay. And that you know, here from here to this, you know, very blatantly graphic example of here is something that is quite clearly wrong in a found poem because the poet didn't actually have to go looking for that tragic story. Mm. The tragic story descends upon them. But um, how, what can they do with that to to, um, to go some way towards making sure it doesn't happen again and to acknowledge that loss? Um, it's yeah. It's just so, so is the title of that poem, isn't it? It is the title of the poem. It's called "It's Just So Wrong," <laughs> which is which is very fitting. Says it um, And the allergies don't, uh, as you note, m- many of them, if not most of them, are not mourning people, or not only mourning people, mm. or con- expressing concern for people. Um. So, yeah, that in particular, and and just ideas about caring for an environment and what is ecology and and should we be pushing the boundaries of our understanding of all those kinds of things and listening to, um, you know, you can't really know a people until you really get to read what's on their hearts and minds and what are uh, aspirations for the future and our concerns for the present. And this book does so much Mm. of that. And you also ask in particular about poetry in first languages, which I did actually also mention, but that was more than just poetry. Yes, what emerged were some beautiful art art forms of poetry, but um, to go on that journey and to have um, some sort of, to have a sleeping language, because I think none of us really accept that our languages are extinct or dead. I think that's kind of an unfortunate, uh, an unfortunate, part of an unfortunate deficit discourse that settlers continued to perpetuate about us, or some. And um, to have a sleeping language woken up inside you that was always there just waiting for the person to wake it up and, and, and bring those words to your mouth and, and those sounds to your ears for the first time is... Um, I'm not sure if there was ever one word that could capture it it is, it's precious, it's sublime, and that's the journey that um, all the poets, First Nations poets who participated in poetry in first languages um, were able to experience. Yeah. So there was the journey as well as the artefact, which also sort of ties back to the, um, the basket weaving, the mm. weaving process as well. That's, there's so much that we could talk about this collection and unfortunately we're getting to the end of the show here. Um, just quickly before you leave, I know that you were going to read a poem for us. I think it's these words. 
Do you want to yeah. take that away? Uh, or? I will. Um, I'd like to just thank you for giving uh, me the time to talk about this um, Sublime collection and I would really encourage readers to um, engage with these generous offerings. Thank you, Janine. I would have endorse that wholeheartedly. <laughs> thank you. This poem's called Nihinga Guya Niyang. These words... These words cry out and I hear them, learn to mould them and shape them like clay. There should have been a time for such words, for this word, Nihinga, Niang, and a word for such time, Guayu. How clunky these are as I first stumble over them, Grappling like the child I should have been when I first felt them. Wingya, Delini, sang them. Tadiya, spoke them. Yayi. Now, my clumsy tongue struggles over each new syllable. My country, the Gerberang, gives me. Each one I want to devour. Like the sweetest thing, Walaru, Bang, Gulu, Dehayu, I ever tasted. I want to suck every shred of marrow, dum dumbiri, from each solid sound. I want to swallow it whole, Daramara, to know what it is to eat for the first time. I want to feel like the child born. To these words, Gadaha, the Hungary, Ningiha, Nian. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. Um, if you've just joined in, I've been chatting with Dr. Janine Lean, a Wiradjuri writer, academic and editor of Guayu for All Times, this stunning poetry collection of First Nations poetry that is out now with Red Room Poetry and Magabala Books. Thanks so much for joining me on the show, Janine. Pleasure. Thank you, Eliza. Speak Bye. soon. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 